Welcome to Authorized, a podcast where we fervidly read the novelization of any film fortunate enough to have one. Novelizations are a completely parallel text made in relation to a film. These texts, while, bo- while borrowing from the characters and setting of the film, have little to no interest in actually portraying any of the movie's memorable moments. Like an eager contrarian, novelizations downplay the huge moments from their source material while magnifying and accentuating characters and situations that were only briefly touched upon on screen. These books strive to be the literary equivalent of that Jay-Z album that was, quote, inspired by the film American Gangster, unquote. They are determined and brazen secondary texts. While a person could digest the film without the book, digesting the book without the film is almost unimaginable. In their parasitic way, novelizations are the DVD bonus features of tactile media. We are your hosts, a loose coalition of novelization enthusiasts. My name is Andrew Overby. I'm Hannah Blackman. I'm Johnny Pomato. And I'm Andrew Marco. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is a 2019 comedy, drama, revisionist history film directed by Quentin Tarantino. It stars Leonardo DiCaprio as famous actor Rick Dalton and Brad Pitt as his wise if psychopathic stunt double, Cliff Booth. In 1969, Rick is grappling with how the bloom is falling from the rose of his career, just as Cliff begins to detect the shifting morals of the era, morals that will eventually come erupting violently into their lives. The novelization Once Upon a Time, in Hollywood, was written by Quentin Tarantino and published by Visonia Romantica and Harper Perennial in 2021. Unlike most novelizations, there is no verbiage compelling the reader to associate a connection between the screenplay for the 2019 film and the novel. The only causal tissue present is the claim, quote, the new novel based on the film, unquote, on the back cover of the first edition paperback. So I wanted to start us off today by saying, uh, I think, you know, we texted about this a little bit in advance uh, I think we all agree after reading this book that um, Cliff Booth is super cool, <laughs> and he's actually my hero. And I think you were all agreeing with me on that, right? Uh, no, a wife right. murdering yes. bastard? I don't know. Upon rewatch of the film, I li- I couldn't like Brad Pitt anymore. I had too much context for that character. <laughs> so, th- sorry, uh, this is a, a movie so. The, the film, I mean, is so obsessed with the idea of an actor's ego. And, and of course, the book has a lot of that in it, too. Uh, and sort of how, like, choosing a role is this huge move to make, and it defines how people see you. How must it feel to portray a character in a movie who has ambiguous morals, only to then have the book come out, and Brad Pitt has unwittingly signed on to be an unambiguous, wife-murdering, serial killer. <laughs> yeah, that, that was one of the big revelations is not just his wife, but several other people he has murdered. Yeah. Uh, I will say, like, when I first saw the movie, when it came out, I was like, I'm not really hot on Cliff Booth. And I guess maybe I was picking up on some subtextual, he's a fucking murderer shit. Uh, but the book makes it so unambiguous and horrifying that every single time there was a description of a murder that he did, I was like, Bleh. 
Yuck. Yeah. Now, I also, I I think Brad Pitt is great in the movie. I think it's a great performance. Uh, However, he was not my ideal uh, casting choice for that role. Uh, When I heard that uh, Tom Cruise had circled it, I was curious. I was intrigued by that. I don't know if he was right as well. What I always, who who I always thought was the perfect sort of stuntman, sort of Hal Needham, um, you know, uh, stand-in is someone who Quentin Tarantino has worked with before. Hannah, I think you're going to be on the same page with me on this one. I, you know, I just think of Cliff Booth, and I think Walton Goggins. And <laughs> I was reading this book, imagining Walton Goggins in the role. Hmm. I, hmm. Part of it being, I think, Brad Pitt, too pretty. Too, too, too good looking. Uh, it, they even call attention to that several times. Uh, you know, a stuntman. If a guy that good looking would have suddenly been an actor, somebody would have put him exactly. in front of a camera. Yeah, yeah. and but it's not murderer, like well, so. oh, yeah, well that helps. Yeah, it's not like Michelle Pfeiffer when she's a waitress in Frankie and Johnny. It's like, well, why doesn't she just go model or be an actress? Well, she's a waitress in Queens. But Brad Pitt, Cliff Booth, is circling around Hollywood constantly. I think someone would have said, hey, why don't we put him in a shot on purpose where you can see his face? This guy's a star. <laughs> But uh, I also think he and Leo are not good physical matches. No, No. there are parts in this book where Rick is like, nobody would match me like him. You know, we're such a good fit. And it's like, you're not. Brad is so much taller. He's so much thinner. He's so much blonder. (laughs) First off, Hannah, I think that line, nobody would match me as well as him. I think that's like a philosophical statement. (laughs) I mean, I think, yes. No, and I'm serious. I. Well, even if Leo's character, if Rick Dalton doesn't mean it that way consciously, I think that is what he's saying. Is like, I can't think of a better sort of foil for myself than this man. But I agree with you. When I rewatch the movie and it opens with this behind the scenes interview and the guy interviewing Leo and Brad Pitt says, don't adjust your television. If you think you're seeing double, you're not. This is a man in his stunt double. I was like... I do not think I am seeing double. <laughs> These are two different men. <laughs> I guess before we get too far into this, uh, we should start off by, by uh, you know, right out of the gate, uh, go around the room and say, uh, what did we think of the movie? Did we like the movie to begin with? Because, uh, yeah, this is a, a, a fairly new film. I, I think that I, I've seen it twice. Uh, I wasn't wild about it initially I, I i respected it i was interested in it i was curious but uh i i had to accept a few things about it before i started to warm up to different aspects of it uh and the novelization uh improved many aspects for me and then also uh, detracted a few aspects of the film that i you know liked a little less as a result so uh what does everyone think of the film itself uh sure so i am a Tarantino fan who sort of fell away. Uh, my favorite Tarantino movie is Jackie Brown. And so I was sort of not as into Django or Hateful Eight, which Andrew, I actually think we saw that together in Boston. Mm-hmm. And I was just sort of like, okay, he's doing a Manson movie. What kind of gross out ending is this going to be? Like I wasn't ready for what I expected the movie to be. But I was sort of delightfully surprised that the movie I saw was much more like Jackie Brown in that it was sort of a hangout movie. And it sort of just felt like, hey, let's just follow these people around. Maybe there'll be some action. Maybe there'll be some plot. But it'll mostly be about just sort of like soaking in these characters. 
And so the two times I saw it in theaters, I was just happy that Tarantino was doing something that I felt was a little bit of a departure from his most recent work, though obviously his trademarks are still there. Uh, And the book, you know, in some ways, as you mentioned, there's some stuff I really like and there's some stuff I really didn't like. And I think it almost falls upon the character line. I, as we've already sort of talked about, I don't like Cliff Booth and what we learned in the book, not even just the murder stuff, but just like that. He's a foreign film fan. Like, I feel like this is a meat and potatoes guy who watches The Price is Right. I don't think he's going to see Fellini and Bergman films at at the cinema with his hot dates. Well, that's interesting because I have always thought that whatever you think of Quentin Tarantino uh, as a writer, as a director, I was always impressed that I did not think that for the most part he put himself into his films. Now, early on, any like pop culture conversations, Reservoir Dogs and stuff, uh, that, that's present. Pulp Fiction a little. But uh, he always seemed pretty removed from his characters. Uh, reading the book, though, I think every time Cliff was talking about I Am Curious Yellow or some, or some samurai movies or something, I, I just kept thinking, these aren't Cliff's opinions. These are Quentin's opinions. And Quentin just wants a platform to talk about these movies. Uh, I agree. I did not buy... Cliff's film tastes. Hannah, what do you think? Um, okay, well, one, I did buy Cliff's tastes, actually. That all made perfect sense to me as a guy who's like, thinks he's a little too good for it, um, but he's still like sticking it out. Um, but I will say, uh, when I saw the movie the first time in the theaters, I was a little bit like on edge about it because it has this Manson movie thing, and I was like, I don't want to watch a murder, a bunch of murders. And so I was very pleasantly surprised by the historical revisionist aspect. And upon rewatch, after having read the book, I was like, oh, this movie is sweet. And I like its sweetness. And I like the character, you know, the like Rick and Cliff, like friendship bit of the movie. And a lot of the other stuff in the movie, the like stuff with Sharon, I don't really care about that much. The stuff that's like, here's what it's like to work on a film set. I'm like, I don't super need that. I love the like, Rick Dalton is like one of my favorite Tarantino characters, I think. He's like so insecure and so pathetic. And I love him very deeply. (laughs) And that has developed like in my memories of the movie and then rewatching it. I was like, I'm correct. I'm right. He's great. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I like Rick Dalton. The more I see the movie and the more I would read this book, because I think on that first viewing, I did not like Rick Dalton. I kept thinking, why is this our protagonist? He is so uninteresting, and I have really grown to love him. And I think it's partially because, and especially this book, uh, as you said, Andrew, it's sort of a hangout movie. And if the movie is a hangout movie, well, this is really a hangout book. This Mm -hmm. really takes most of the what we consider the plot of the movie to be. It, it takes it out of it. Uh, and yeah. we are left with a lot of just hanging out, Rick and uh, James Stacy just shooting the shit, talking about their television careers, talking about the movies, to the point that I wondered, well, is this the movie that Quentin wanted to make? And someone said, well, you need to have someone get their head blown off and uh, get set on fire and all of that. You need some some real juicy violence in there because you can't just have guys talking about their television careers for two and a half hours when that's clearly what he wanted to write. I, I just want to jump in quickly to sort of contextualize my relationship to the film, but also I can already tell this is such a going to be such a difficult 
episode to do because every single thing that is said brings up like five topics <laughs> yeah, to talk yeah. about. So um, I didn't enjoy the movie too much in the theaters. I mean, I liked it. I went to see it twice. I, I spent a lot of the first time I was there just trying to figure out what type of a movie it was. And that's just a bad thing to be doing as a viewer. It's a bad way to watch film. And uh, so, yeah, I, my enjoyment of it was much more at home. Um, weirdly, my enjoyment of it was sort of uh, heightened by the reveal that Cliff is like an out-and-out serial killer. Um, because I, I'm trying to figure out how to verbalize this, but it really puts into context for me that these characters exist in a real world where they, just like in real life, do not have the full context of one another. And I, I think all the time about how, like, adults, when they, like, get into arguments at the gas station or, like, road rage or whatever, that really, at their heart, I, I may have said this in a previous episode, but at their heart, all we're ever doing out in the world is being like, well, this is what I was taught is okay by my mom. You know, and someone else is being like, no, this is what I was taught was okay by my mom. And we're just comparing those things. Um, and I love the idea that these two men are vastly different, that one of them has a horrifying past, but they have intersected in a way where for the period of time that they live together, they are perfect for one another. Even though they're both in a state of continuous change. Um, so, in that way, the, the serial killer thing really worked for me. I wanted to read just one line here in regards to I Am Curious Yellow. So, as we've sort of alluded to, uh, Tarantino really lays on the idea that Cliff Booth is a cinephile. I mean, hardcore going to see every foreign film he possibly can and ranking his favorite movies by certain directors. Um, but the line that, that encapsulates... All of the issues with this idea is the first sex scene in I Am Curious Yellow, and for all intents and purposes, modern cinema, wasn't exactly erotic. In parentheses, Cliff didn't get an erection. <laughs> this book really makes Cliff like so, the most horrific horn dog I've like ever encountered. Who's just right. like, how can I fuck every woman I meet? Um, which is not the But you can I tell Tarantino... <laughs> No, and you can tell Tarantino thinks it's sort of beautiful in this weird way, where he's being like, he just loves all women. And you're like, I'm still getting a kind of a skeevy vibe off this guy. Like the part in the film where Kurt Russell is like, he's a creep. Like, we don't want the creep on the set. Like, in the book, 100%, right. he's a fucking creep. Get yeah. him out of yeah. here. Yeah. He's unsafe to but have around I think people. I think Tarantino really butts up against the... the the issue of whether him being a cinephile makes sense or not with the erection line. Because to me, that reads like the guy who quantifies something being an erotic film as did I get an erection or not is not the cinephile. Whereas in every other page, he's saying he truly is. Right. See, for me, the line in that whole cinephile section that really stood out is there's a part where he says about Breathless, Foreign films, Cliff thought, were more like novels. They didn't care if you liked the lead characters or not, and Cliff found that intriguing. Which is like, this whole book is like, what if I made these <laughs> characters who you thought you liked not likable? Do you still like them? 
was like, I don't like Cliff anymore. You got He's, me. Uh, I mean, he makes Dalton, I feel like, more likable. Yeah. See, yeah. I oh, he, I agree. I think he makes Rick stupider, and I found that less likable. Oh, yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, I was struck by how stupid Rick was rewatching the movie. <laughs> I forgot. Uh, when he's talking to the little girl on set, and and she he she's like, uh, what's the story, or tell me the story you're reading. And he goes, I haven't finished it. As if he can't surmise what he's already read. <laughs> and then and then she goes, well, where in the story are you? And he goes, about midway. <laughs> like he's just giving up he's no info at all. <laughs> yeah, I just thought, I don't remember this guy. Maybe it's like Leo's natural sort of like the life behind his eyes there's like a curiosity to leo and and i think it lends itself well to the character because his his character is curious but he's curious about people and he's curious about you know relationships uh he just has such an astounding lack of curiosity about anything intellectual although i do think <laughs> that the book gives him more of a sensitivity than uh that i i think leo's performance definitely shows but not always in the dialogue in the film and uh, I, I think uh, most telling is towards the end of the book with uh, James Stacy when he really gets into the whole Steve McQueen great escape thing, uh, where we see that this is more than just a guy with a chip on his shoulder. This is someone who has really thought this out and is far less concerned with the disappointment that he didn't get the movie than he is with the fact that everyone makes these assumptions about him because of that fact. Uh, Johnny, can you, for the listener, just sum up what this scene that is completely exclusive to the yeah. book is is doing? Uh, basically, the two, you know, uh, he's at a bar with James Stacy, and he uh, he has been, uh, I think in the film, James Stacy does mention, oh, didn't you almost play uh, the McQueen role in Great Escape? It's sort of a running uh, through line in the film and, and the book uh, that people keep asking him this, that he almost got the McQueen role. And in the book, at the end, uh, 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 Leo, um, what, what, Dalton, sorry, Rick, yes. Uh, Rick gets into just sort of doing a step-by-step -step of all the things that would have had to happen for him to get that part. And it's not simply like, oh, well, I was on a list with four other guys and it was, it, it could have been me. It, I could have been any, you know, I, I it could have gone to me if McQueen didn't get it. But he negates every opportunity that he might have had and comes up with a reason why he didn't. And it's a really interesting thing because I think, you know, Quentin knows his stuff, and he's dead right about everything he says in there. But it's also less about the disappointment that he didn't get it. It's more that Dalton has thought this through, and he understands why he didn't get it, and is maybe at peace with not getting it, and he feels that everyone else does not see what he saw in that situation. Absolutely. It's like a totally mercenary breakdown of... Not only did I not only get this, but let's go through the alternate timeline. Like a book obsessed with the idea of altering timelines. Uh, he, he breaks down, let's go through the alternate timeline where McQueen backs out and the three Georges, the guys who are also on the list with me, they all individually back out. And in the end, he says, I, I don't even get it. Because once you get to the last guy on the list, you just throw the list out. And Jim Stacy, the star of Lancer, is like, yeah, I, I agree, actually. You know, once he has it all broken down for him. I This is interesting, Johnny, because when you read that, you saw a lot about Rick's character. When I read that, I was 
thinking a lot about Jim Stacy and about how this is exactly the way in which people are addicted to these little anecdotes, to these little like social sound bites. It's fun to say a thing like, oh yeah, Rick Dalton, he almost got the Steve McQueen part in The Great Escape, just because you're trying to make conversation or you're trying to have, you know, a take on something. But if you really examine something like that closely, you don't know what the fuck you're talking about, unless you are the guy. I just thought that was kind of a fascinating uh, take on how people bullshit. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I... Uh, before we get too far away from it, we, we're talking about revelations about, you know, we, uh, that uh, Cliff did indeed consciously kill his wife as well as some other people. Uh, I will say that one of the things I loved about the movie was that it left some of these things up to you. You All you get is that moment of him on the boat holding the spear gun and you, the audience member, has to decide okay, well, we know what happened, but was this on purpose? Was it not? And whatever you decide influences the rest of the movie of how you see Cliff and how what he consciously does, and you have to decide uh, what kind of person he is. In addition to that, uh, we also have to... Um, Decide for ourselves. I, I think the point of the ending of the movie, uh, with the uh, the Manson break-in and all, is uh, that this is the thing that makes Cliff. Uh, not uh, this is the thing that makes Rick a star. This is uh, he is going to get famous this night. In, not Sharon Tate. Sharon Tate lives, and therefore she's not special. Rick is this hero who stopped these maniacs in his house and he is going to get famous from this and the book really answers the question of just how famous he gets from it uh which i kind of came to the conclusion of not much more a, a little like he's um he's definitely uh you know he uh, he has a good uh, a few good carson anecdotes out of this but you know it, he has more or less the same career that he might have had otherwise except maybe his feeling about that career is different maybe he is he i do think at the end of the book he is more at peace with his place in hollywood uh now what do you think all of you uh that we get more of these definitive answers than we do in the movie. And for me, I kind of prefer not knowing, even as I found a lot of the revelations enlightening and interesting. I think the book and the movie end in the exact same place, which is Rick has a revitalization of his career and he's feeling good about it. He's hopeful. I'm and giving like, a thumbs up for the listener. Thank you. Um, which is a really interesting thing to the point where like when the book ended, I was like, wow, that's not where it should end. And then I thought about it some more and I was like, actually like this works for me emotionally. But personally, like for me, the ending of that movie is such a beautiful open door of like, maybe he does get to star in a Polanski movie. Like maybe he really does get to have this wonderful second act of his career because we're in a fairy tale and you can have everything you want. Um that I like that a little better than the more closed door of like, and here's the answer is a kind of a, a tapering out anyway. Like I really much prefer the like dream fantasy aspect of the end of the movie and the movie as a whole than the sort of more like hard it's on paper. Like, you know, there's something to that in the book that it's more like, here's some facts. Absolutely. Well, Hannah, do you want to maybe I'm trying to like uh, push you into this, but do you want to <laughs> say the thing that you said uh, over text oh, yeah. about the novelization. <laughs> it's not a novelization. A it's not a novelization at all. It is not covering the entire it movie. I it's totally not agree. Covering even thematically the entire movie. 
Um, it's mostly scenes that are like either completely invented for the book or are deleted scenes. I borrowed a DVD to rewatch the movie and like some of a lot of the Lancer stuff is deleted scenes, all the talk with Sam Wanamaker about like spirit animals and like Shakespeare is deleted scenes. It just feels like an additional place for Tarantino to like put some of the ideas that he had um, that he wanted to like be out in the world. But it's not a novelization of the movie. You're not getting the movie out of this book. Absolutely. I sort of, I sort of tip my hand with the uh, the intro, but I do really think of this as a series of DVD bonus features, and I think that has value. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna ramble for a little. I like bit, it but as I, an accompanying I, I, okay. text. Right, totally, and I think that's what it is. I so Tarantino, right? He is um, a mimic. I mean, and I don't mean that as a diss. I love Tarantino. But the dig on him early when he's doing Pulp Fiction, Reservoir Dogs, and everything is like, this guy doesn't create. He just blends things together, right? And I think that's true, basically. But I commend him for it, and I love it. Because I push back pretty hard against the idea of there being whatever seven different forms of narrative, whatever they are, like man versus man, man versus machine, man versus nature. Because in my mind, whenever people say that, it's like there's... 200 forms of narrative because man versus man plays out in six different ways you know so that's those are different stories so i've always kind of admired the way in which he is a collage artist one thing i think is interesting about his total reverence to old media or the media he grew up with is that sometimes he wants to recreate it so badly that he does it wrong so, do you remember the Grindhouse double feature, oh, yes. Death Proof and Planet Terror, where he and he and Robert Rodriguez team up, and they're like, his first name's Robert, right? Uh-huh. Rodriguez? Okay. They they team up, and they're like, let's do a an old double feature, you know, just a really grimy action movies with like a sci-fi bent, something we'd just wander into when we were teenagers, that sort of thing. And they're so excited about it, and they want to do it to the max, and they accidentally create two full-length features that run in the excess of three hours when put back-to-back and, frankly, are too good to be homages of shitty movies you would just wander into off the street. Like, I, I honestly think they missed the mark. Well, too good I, I can agree with, at least uh, Death Proof, which I think is quite good. Uh, I love yeah, Death Proof. But I do think that that film at least had the uh, the spirit of those films in that if you watch a lot of those old exploitation films like uh, The Candy Snatchers and stuff like that, uh, which I, I watch a lot of, uh, they have, they're punctuated by some pretty big moments, but also a lot of downtime, a lot of, as we've said before, hangout. And I thought Rodriguez's film, while entertaining, was way too eventful. It was like just constant wall-to-wall violence, uh, aliens popping out of things and stuff. Whereas Tarantino's Death Proof is mostly them just uh, first half hanging out in the bar. Then there's this violent death involving the car. Then the second half, these uh, stunt women uh, hanging out in a restaurant, getting a car, going for a ride, another big violent event. I I did think that that was 
true to that. Uh, it, it's... I, I think it's one of the most formally daring movies I've ever seen. That that movie basically goes, what if two movies happened in a row and there was just continuity with one character? I thought that was kind of incredible. Just just speaking about Death Proof. Um, I will stop talking in a second, but the, the way this relates to the book is Tarantino, I'm sure, has this respect for novelizations growing up in an era where people actually read them, maybe. Uh, and, you know, everything about this novelization is trying to send up old novelizations. There's ads for other novelizations in it. It is the size paperback that you can fit in, like, the back pocket of your jeans, which I think is very intentional. Yeah, but it's um, also 400 pages long. <laughs> It's 400 it's pages so long. It's so much longer than any novelization would be in the early 80s. Exactly. I think that he... I love this book. I, I'll just say it. But I think he misses the mark because he got so excited about the possibility of what a novel could be that he made something not even resembling a novelization in content at all. So we look at, like, the scene in the movie where Charles Manson... The one Charles Manson scene where he shows up to... Is it is it uh, Sebring or Polanski who's Sebring. home? It's Polanski, Sebring. right? No, it's Sebring. Okay, so, so he shows up to Polanski's house and interacts with Jay Sebring and, and, uh, and Sharon sees Sharon sees him Tate. from a distance and then he leaves. In the movie, it's like, oh, what was that about? Was he staking it out to kill them? And then you read the book and there's all this backstory about how Charlie Manson was gonna get a, a record deal or he thought he was with this guy Terry Melcher and... He really, really wants it. It's like his Achilles heel. He's like pretending to be this invincible cult leader, but he wants the record deal so bad. Uh, and so he's going to see Terry in this desperate ploy to try to win him over. That's and it turns out Terry's moved away. That it must be Damn. because when you watch the movie, you can see all of that in Damon Harriman's performance. You can see it all. It like it a hundred percent was part of the original conception, and I'll it's also now. it's also incredibly <laughs> true. Like all, that whole section, all all of the history about uh, Terry Melcher and all uh, Candace Bergen, all the way those intersect is very true and accurate to why the Manson murders happened in the first place. Now I have a uh, question for you yeah. guys. Sorry, I don't mean to interrupt. Oh no, no, please. Um, but speaking of Manson, this novel because it does not end in the Manson murder. <laughs> situation at all how do we feel about like any of that even being included in this book let's find the let's find the passage where they just casually mention the end of the movie about 100 pages in. yeah so for those of for those of you who haven't read the book the in the film of course it ends with some of manson's uh family coming and attacking uh rick and cliff and and basically getting getting uh, owned and uh, brutally, brutally murdered in the case of the one girl. Um, all of them so are brutally murdered. So, in what's that? I all, mean, that one, the one with are... the face into the phone is the yeah. same person who goes into the pool. No. That's the no. worst one. No, those are two different. No, people. it's not. Two different she people. She just gets oh. hit in the face a bunch. Yeah. Uh, then the girl gets the her phone. head smashed on the table, and that kills her. And then the other guy gets his and face kicked in, which is pretty nasty. Like the one thing I don't yeah. like about the movie is how brutally violent the end is. That's yeah, I, I really thought that the the face phone girl was the pool girl. They're both. No, she still gets attacked blood, by the dog and glass. Oh, you're right. All right, I've been wrong before. Girl. It's happening again. Cool. Um. So okay, so. 
on page 110 of this 400-page book, Tarantino just casually gives away the end of the movie by flashing forward to something that takes place after the movie where uh, DiCaprio gets a phone call from Paul Wencos, who he's worked with on, on many films. Uh, and Wencos goes, basically says, how you doing? Uh, and let's see. He says, I heard some fucking hippies busted in your place and you went all Mike Lewis on them. Rick says, all I did was realize the distance between me and Mike Lewis. He kills 150 Nazis and doesn't change his expression. I torched one small hippie girl and I practically shit my pants. Now, they don't really explain what happens at all. That's all no, they, they give you They don't even give you the, the connection. No. Because does the book even mention, I know that we see most of the Spawn Ranch sequence from Squeaky Frome's perspective. Do they even mention that Cliff beats up Clem? They do not. It no, he does not have the... That whole thing is not in the book. So yeah. because yeah. of this, yes, I found that revelation, you know, the 100 pages in, just sort of letting you know what's going to happen. Pretty shocking. And I thought, wow, yeah. that is a really bold take to just casually throw it out there to what we're building towards. And as I kept reading and the, you know, I got further and further in and I was getting closer and closer to the end, it dawned on me, we're never getting there, which I thought was an interesting move. I and I respected it. The only real complaint I had in that department, though, is if that's the case, if Quentin is going to reduce the big climactic set piece of his movie to a footnote, then why did he not cut out all of the stuff that is related to it? Why do we get so much Sharon Tate? Why do we get any Manson stuff at all? Clearly, he wanted to write a book about uh, Rick Dalton hanging out on the set of, of Lancer with uh, James Stacy and talking to uh, this little girl, Trudy, and just reflecting on his career in general. I, and I'm fine with that. I kind of like that. I almost prefer that to the uh, to the movie that we do get. Um, and uh, I, The I looming do... presence of Sharon Tate. You're just getting to know her so that you will see her be murdered. And then yeah. you thankfully yeah. don't have to see her get murdered. And I personally found that very stressful, which I think is the point in the movie. But in the book, it's like, dude, why? Why are we doing any of this? No, I agree with you both on that, that everything with the Mansons feels gratuitous, especially because it goes to so much effort to talk so much about the sexual lives of all these yeah. Manson girls. I mean, the sequence in the car uh, with... Uh, Brad Pitt's Pussy character cat. and Andy McDowell's daughter is just so graphic and pornographic in a way that's just like, what? Why are you doing this? Like, I don't. The scene has enough going on in the film. What you're doing here is just you being sort of weird and pervy. Yeah, we could accept yeah. that Cliff would turn down a sexual encounter with this girl without her suddenly being naked and spreading gold in the seat next to him. Uh, it's 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 an odd choice. Whatever. But... Right, and once again, Brad Pitt like signed on to be like an ambiguously moral character, and then in the book there's like a, a teenager masturbating next to him, and she's like, do you like this? And he's like, yes, for sure. <laughs> Before we totally leave the Sharon Tate situation, I just want to make one point and then definitely let's move on to some of the other interesting factors of the book. But um, in rewatching the movie, I really got, you know how in The Nice Guys, 
a movie I'm sure we all like. Mm-hmm. Maybe, right? I've not seen but, it. Well, pick up, pick it up, man. It's good. It's a good movie. But I do feel like that <laughs> movie is about characters who are not actually the leads of a movie. They're secondary characters who happen to be our protagonist, right? They're bumping up against a, a more important plot line that they don't understand. And in watching Once Upon a Time in Hollywood again, I was like, oh, that's exactly what's happening with Rick and Cliff. They are bumping up against this Manson murder plotline, which is much more important than they are and much more interesting than they are and much more like dramatically compelling. And they just happen to be in the right place in the right time to become the heroes of that story. Um, another thing where I'm like, there's too much Sharon Tate in this. Uh, and for the book, which is essentially like, okay, now you have like a second, like characters who are set aside from a main plot. Here's even more stuff set aside from an even more set aside plot. Uh, fascinating, interesting. Um, but I, I don't fully get the purpose. <laughs> and that's the And, end and of that also movie. Sharon, Sharon in the book and the movie is, um, pretty passive character and not personality wise but like the the it's it's a it's a story of things happening to her uh i i think anyway and and so i i feel like giving us way more of her in the book isn't necessarily added value like plot wise either it just raises the question of why i mean do we get any like totally new scenes with her in the book Yes, we so. do. do. We, we get the introduction. We get her a flashback hitchhiking to Hollywood from Texas, yes. uh, and also the most pointless thing in the book, I think, is is the flashback to her filming the Wrecking Crew. Mm-hmm. Yes, which is like I can't even remember what happened in that. Well, even though I read that two days ago, I will. I, I do think that we could just remove all the Tate, all the Manson stuff uh, completely, since that isn't really what this book ends up being about. However, at least the Sharon Tate um, uh, wrecking crew and going to the movie and watching her, that is at least in line with the stuff that Rick is contemplating with his own career. Uh, Sort of viewing uh, how others see him, how he sees himself on screen. Uh, Now, why Sharon Tate, of all people, then? Uh, That's a question that only Tarantino can answer. Uh, But at least that, I think, is parallel with Rick's story. Uh, Unnecessary still, but uh, I do think that the more... uh, The thing that sticks out more is the whole Manson element. uh, Because it is building to something that doesn't happen at all. Uh, Which is fine. So, I I guess a a question that I kept... that I kept asking myself throughout reading was, is, should this have just been a book? Should this, did this need to be a movie at all? Would this have just been a better novel? And I wonder if there are people out there who are reading it who haven't bothered to see the movie. I can't imagine that's a big percentage of people uh, reading this book, but I would be curious what that reaction would be. And I think a lot of people who liked the movie, I mean, I know my parents saw it, which kind of shocked me because it wasn't their Tarantino's not usually their cup of tea, but I think they liked it because as boomers, it was like a, you know, look back at a time that they knew. And I feel like this book is just so extra in so many ways that it wouldn't appeal to a lot of the audience who liked the movie who aren't Tarantino fans. Mm-hmm. I think to yeah, siphon into the point, Marco, I think you were going to make is that there are chapters in this book that are novelizations of the episode of Lancer for example. Right. There's more about Lancer. There's more about Lancer than there is about the Mansons, basically. 
I was going to say when when uh, whichever one of you said, did he just, I think it was Johnny, did he just want to write, uh, you know, about Rick being on the set of Lancer? I was, I was thinking, did he just want to write Lancer? Because it feels like he wanted to just write Lancer episodes. I really, now that I'm reading this book and I rewatch the movie, I feel like I'm going to be disappointed watching Lancer because I can't imagine it's as good as Tarantino is making it sound. I am so invested in the Rick Dalton performance that we see for that villain in Lancer. But I think to watch the actual pilot of Lancer and see some other guy doing stuff like that, I'd be like, Not as, I don't like it as much. Not as, <laughs> like, it would like, change the whole thing for me at this point. Yeah, yeah, this was sort of my chief complaint with the movie. Well, not even my chief complaint. And it's something I got over. But I am really fascinated with television of this era and these types of shows. Hannah, I know you are as well. You're a big yep. Columbo head and, and uh, Ironsides and Perry Mason and all that. Uh, I am fascinated by that. And I thought that in the movie... Tarantino made the process and these shows seem way more interesting and cinematic than they ever were. And I think that that extends to this book where we are getting whole chapters of just dialogue from Lancer, which I kept reading and thinking I would just rather watch the show. And I think that, uh, you know, without uh, having this as an accompaniment, uh, it would do the show a disservice because it, there's no way it's this entertaining or interesting. Uh, but I I wish we had gotten either way less of that or way more of that. It's like, I do think, I agree, Andrew, that Tarantino wanted to write a series. He wanted to go back in time and write on J.T. Lancer or Ironside or one of those shows. Uh, and... Uh, I think that he was living out that fantasy through this. And it's fun to play what if. It's fun to sort of see uh, what he might have written for one of those shows. But I think that he did too good a job in, or I guess not a good enough job, in recreating these shows. He was doing too good of a job of making it uh, uh, cinema worthy. Would we feel better if it wasn't Lancer, a real show, but a fake show? Because Bounty Law. I mean, I wasn't aware it was show, a real right? show, to be honest. Okay. So <laughs> I had no idea it was a real show, so I was just along for the ride. I, I do want to just, I, I'm a little trigger happy tonight, and I, I apologize if I'm walking over everybody. I'm excited. So um, I do just want to counter what Hannah and Johnny, what you're both saying. Like, I. I think the book is awesome, and I think the Manson stuff is really compelling. I think the fact that it doesn't come together is interesting. Like, I'm not saying that if I read this without watching the movie, it'd be my favorite book, but the way that it just mentions the this huge climax but jumps past it. If I hadn't seen the movie, I would at least recognize that that's a crazy thing to drop in. That he flamethrowered a hippie. I, um, I think that the book and the movie are fascinating companions to one another. And I'm not sure if either totally stand up on their own. Uh, I, I think that the book is this impressionistic thing that if, if I was reading it without watching the movie and I had that happen with the climax and there were whole chapters that were just about Lancer in the universe of Lancer... I think I'd be in love with it. I mean, it's just so, it's <laughs> so, so beautiful. it's just so compelling chapter to chapter. When I would start a new chapter, I'd be like, 
who the hell am I with this time? Is this even real life? You know, I, I was, I was, I was in love with it. <laughs> it's certainly a book that makes you want to go to Wikipedia and be like, did Bruce Stern really show up on this show? Cause he drops in a lot of stuff in this book of like, well, these are actors he's either worked with or he's mentioned that he likes. And is this actual stuff that he's mentioning? I mean, he mentions Vic Morrow like 75 times <laughs> in the book. He, he I, we also have to get to the fact that Quentin Tarantino is a character yes. in this book. The end of this book basically becomes the seventh book of the Dark Tower. Yeah, <laughs> where, where it's like Stephen King is just hanging out with the characters and stuff. Um. <laughs> and I'll explain for context. So in that scene where Jim Stacy and Rick Dalton and Cliff are all hanging out at a restaurant, you know, sizing each other up, talking careers, talking about the great escape, there's a pianist sitting in the corner playing pop songs uh, and sort of joining in the conversation at a certain point, he's like, my son, Quentin, loves your work. He loved you in the seven fists of McCluck, whatever it is. Four, the 14, 14 fists of McCluskey. Or on Lancer. And, I, and you're just kind of like, okay. <laughs> I did flip backwards because they say the pianist's full name. And I don't know enough and it's about not Tarantino, Tarantino to know. Right. So I flipped back to check and I was like, oh. I think that's because it's his stepfather. Uh, or uh, it's it's not his uh, blood father, it's his stepfather who raised him. Um, not only that scene, not only that reference, but Trudy, the little girl in Lancer, uh, mm-hmm. is nominated for an Oscar for a Quentin Tarantino movie that does not exist. Right. That does not exist, the remake of The Lady in Red. Well, this is the uh, thing well as... about Tarantino's movies, is I feel like after Inglorious Bastards, we as a film society decided like, oh, we get it now. Like, there's the real world Tarantino movies where history changed because they just murdered a bunch of fucking nazis and now we love violence because it solves problems so there's like real movies that take place in the real world of tarantino's post-violence world and then there's the movies that exist within that world that are ultra violent and we're like that's cool we love it and this story is another (laughs) one of those like violence solves problems the world we live in is ultra violent because of we murdered all those nazis and the parallel the parallel universe continues as well with uh, Trudy is also nominated yes. for Ordinary People in the Elizabeth McGovern role and uh, Agnes like, of God. Is there, what? Yeah, and Agnes yeah. of God in the Meg Tilly role, uh, which which only made me wonder, well, what happened to Elizabeth McGovern and Meg Tilly? That, that's interesting. Uh, I, yeah, I had a lot of questions about, like, obviously you can sort of, you can sort of fictionalize whatever you want. But, like, there are people that, you know, and Tarantino loves to throw around slurs. It's what he's sort of known for. But some of these actors, uh, like the guy who plays Bernardo in West Side Story, who he's really belittling. And I'm like, that guy is still alive. Like, is that guy going to file a libel suit against this book? (laughs) Although I kind of am of the same opinion that I I think they call his Oscar win inexplicable, uh, which I I agree every time I watch West Side Story and I love it. And I think that his performance is very good. uh, I always think he's the one who won. Russ Tamblin, not even nominated. Yeah, Uh, yeah, but I don't know. That's my own personal thing. Uh, I will say I had mixed feelings about how much Trudy was in this book, how much more Trudy, because I find Trudy almost unbearable in the book. Yes. (laughs) Well, well, here's the thing. I think I liked her more in the book, but I really didn't like her in the movie. Like, and part of that is like, I have a hangout with child actors and the girl bugged me here when it was just words. I uh, didn't mind it as much, but I still found her 
uh, far too precocious, far too knowing and uh, clever and uh, She's not, like, a child. Like, this is the part where I was like, Tarantino, like, you're not writing this character realistically in any way, shape, or form. Like, I get that she's a very smart child and she's a mature child because she's working on film sets. But no, no child in the world, no matter how mature and thoughtful they are, that speaks and behaves the way that Trudy does in this book. Especially towards and, the end when she calls Rick on the phone in that scene mm-hmm. and is like, you're in love with me and that's, let's spin this out. And I'm like, no, absolutely not. And him being like, I'm uncomfortable and you gotta stop. Like, me too. For the listener, she's insisting that the character Rick is playing is in love with the character she's playing. Of yeah. course, there's unfortunate implications along with that. Just yeah. the fact that that's being tabled at all. Well, yeah. the subtext um, is that Trudy has a little crush on Rick. I think that that is that's in the movie, and that's really in the book, and that's fine. The little girl has a little crush on her co-star. What I was terrified of was it. There was so much between the two of them that I kept thinking, I think Rick has a little affection for her as well, maybe a little too much. I kept flashing back to uh, the Timothy Hutton, Natalie Portman thing in Beautiful Girls, where it's like, wow, they're two, like, linked souls. They're they're of like minds. And uh, I, you know, we we get a sort of uh, uh, explanation, flash forward of what her career was like. And it sounds like they don't intersect too much. But I did wonder, it's like, oh, what, what... Takeaways are we supposed to have with this, the closeness of this relationship, particularly the end of the book. It ends on the two of them talking to one another. And you get to see like their acting relationship in the movie. Yeah. Like the book doesn't have any of the acting scenes because those would be no. not interesting to read, I think. Yeah. Uh, but like getting to see them talk about the process of acting and then perform acting and then that wonderful, like, that's the best acting I've ever seen in my life. And Leo, like, hmm. You know, like that's such the perfect button on like their little scene. Yes. That to then yeah. have the rest of it, you're like, mm, that stop, stop, we did it. There's there's a lot added into this movie that I think is terrific. I, I think the I think the final Mel Schwartz scene is like so good as to be crucial. You mean Marvin Schwartz? Marvin Schwartz. Schwartz. Yes, I, and I and I I think his final scene, which I hopefully will get to, is like so good that it, it, they could have used it in the movie. My issue with Trudy, I, I also have an issue with Trudy, but it's different. My issue is like, I I kind of do believe she's a real child who has just been forced into this profession and is you know seventeen years old at age eight or or what have you. Just you know. Yeah, a person who is gonna be extremely messed up, but isn't at the point where we're really seeing that yet. My issue with it that Hannah kind of touched on is, do the added scenes with Trudy take us to a place that the scenes in the movie don't? And and I think, no. I think all the Trudy scenes where she comes to Leo's uh, trailer and talks to him about acting, and then she calls him to run lines. I think they're all kind of hitting the same beats that the Trudy scene from the movie does. Mm-hmm. And so adding her in again doesn't accomplish anything new. Now, can we talk about my favorite character? She's on the side of the book. Uh, her name is Brandy. She's a cute little dog. How did we feel? She's about also a murderer. Yeah. Oh, I. She's then, a killer. I'm sorry. I'm talking. I'm talking too much, but the, the, the whole thing we've been saying about Cliff being a serial killer, 
should be contextualized because if I didn't read the book, I'd be like, how exactly is he one, right? He's killed like so, four people and gotten away with it. Just stone cold murders. In addition to all the murders he did in the war. And he's also a dogfighter. Yeah. Yes. yes, he's like a Robert Durst style <laughs> serial killer where he's not out on the prowl trying to kill people, but he will do it in a rage. And that has happened many times. And he's done it publicly. Um, he killed and people he's done in it a publicly. restaurant. So I just want to read <laughs> the, the, the passage where they first tell us that Cliff is a serial killer. Um, so there's this long story about what is the guy's name? Buster Cooley. Um, Buster Cooley is this friend of Cliff's who owes him $3,200 in ni- 1969. So he basically owes him $10 million. And um, Cl- uh, Cliff's cool with it. He's like, oh, that's $3,200 I'm probably never seeing again. And Buster Cooley feels really guilty about it. And he, and he goes, Cliff, I have a plan for us to get our money back. I have this dog. I'm going to put her in a bunch of fights. And um, we'll make a ton of money off her because she's vicious. Cliff thinks it's a great idea. They win all this money off of her. And then Buster Cooley goes, okay, I've got another fight for her to do. And Cliff says she got super injured. She's going to die if she does another fight. And Buster says, okay, I know that, actually, because I'm not dumb. And I'm saying we put her in a fight and we bet against her. And Cliff, who has become attached to this dog, viciously fights his friend to the death. Beats the guy to death, leaves him in the the victim's car, and basically just leaves. And And so the passage in the book is, this wasn't the first time Cliff committed murder and got away with it. The first time was in Cleveland in the 50s. The second time was when Cliff killed his wife two years earlier. This was his third time. And Cliff got away with this one, too. He never heard a word about what eventually happened to Buster Cooley or his car. In fact, nobody he knew even brought Buster up again. That was last year. And since that time, Cliff's only fought... Oh, and since that time, Cliff's only fought Brandy twice when he was really hard up for cash. So he still puts her in dogfights. But after the last time, Cliff promised Brandy, even though Brandy didn't understand, he'd never fight her again. And that was a promise Cliff intended to keep. So... The book is like, he kills this guy. By the way, this is his third murder. It doesn't even mention that one of the three, the two preceding it was a double homicide. So it's his fourth murder. It's, it's a thing where, like, if we're supposed to like Cliff at all, dropping this shit in very early in the book makes it extremely hard. And then I don't think the book Page is 73. doing the character building work to be like, but we like Cliff because he loves Rick and he loves Brandy and he's a sweetheart despite the murders. Like, you don't get any of that kindness because of the limited window no. of the book. So I'm just like, Cliff is a psycho and I don't like him. He freaks me out. He makes me nervous. And I was actually more turned off by the idea of how much he enjoyed fighting this dog than, uh, than <laughs> okay. Like, I already had accepted, like, okay, there's at least a good chance that he killed his wife intentionally. <laughs> and then the two guys he kills in the uh, uh, pizza place or something. Uh, it's like, well, that they probably sort of have it coming too. And, you know, even the the dog, you know, his uh, his dog fight partner is, seems like a real jerk. But, uh, yeah, he, he really loves Brandy. And uh, uh, I, I just felt bad for Brandy as but a dog. I'm- fine with brandy just being a well-trained dog yeah because he lives in a trailer in the desert i'm sure weirdos came to his place like these are the things where i wish i hadn't read it in the book because i don't need it you don't need the extra context and i i didn't rewatch the movie after this because 
I actually was like, oh, I want the movie to be in my mind the way it was before I read this book. I agree. And I still like the book. It's still an interesting companion. I still find it a very interesting artifact, but like I don't know if I want to rewatch the movie again now because I'm it's now it's it's the same way as the Star Wars prequels can co- in, in with some of their weirdness can color watching the originals and stuff like that where I didn't need the added information in some cases. Yeah, there is a lot of information that we get in this book that I am not going to necessarily apply to the film on subsequent watches. I think that I can keep them pretty separate. I uh, can decide if I like that Cliff uh, Cliff killing his wife as a complete accident, as well as any other little extra uh, confirmations of uh, what happens throughout their lives and careers. Uh, I, I agree that the uh, the book is a fascinating companion, and it, uh, you know, just the way that the movie deals with alternate timelines, we can just look at the book as sort of an alternate timeline for the movie. Uh, not right. necessarily all canon. Uh, you know, Quentin might disagree with that, and... Uh, uh, but, and that's fine. I, I think that these two entities exist on their own separately and quite well, too. Do we have any sense of when this book was written? Like, did he... Obviously, some of this is just deleted sequences that he's like, I want this out there in some sort of form. But do we know if this was all the book that he had in mind before he wrote the movie, when he wrote the screenplay? Or did is any of this like well you know i've thought about it over the last year and i think cliff booth is a serial killer and i'm going to write about how he's a serial killer i think that most of the information that's in this book he decided somewhere during the writing process. I know that several of the scenes in here that are not in the movie uh some of them were shot some of them he wrote and didn't shoot um the uh, uh yeah the the sequence with um I forget which Manson girl it is who breaks into uh, the one home. Deborah Jo. Deborah Jo. Pussycat. Yeah. Uh, that sequence, I believe, was shot. I don't know if it's on the Blu-ray or anything. Uh, and uh, and several other sequences uh, were shot. But I, I'm i not... Sh- I, I do think that the book itself, the novel, was written uh, in the wake of the success of the movie. I don't think that he was sort of going back and forth. Maybe he did intend to write it as a novel at one point and decide as a screenplay. He has... In a you know, in accompanying his talk of retirement, said that he might just become a novelist and do this full time. And hey, maybe that would be fine. Maybe uh, we could do with a few uh, Quentin Tarantino projects that, instead of movies, end up as uh, written pieces. I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure he's a great writer not of novels. I just I don't find his prose to be anything great. Like, I'm not so in love with the prose of this book that if he wrote a bunch of novels, like, I would read them, but I would be kind of like, okay, what, why don't you just make some more movies, man? Like, I like, I can't believe I'm the, like, defender of this novel. (laughs) I can't believe that's my role. (laughs) Um, The thing is, I I think, (laughs) sorry. No, I'm just going to say, I find the movie to be so tender and sweet in many ways that I really connect with it and I like it on that level. Like, especially like the last half hour, that whole sequence of like more than a brother, less than a wife, everything with Francesca is like very lovely. And the book is, has none of that heart at all. I thought. So it just doesn't work for me in the same way. And I didn't love the experience of it because it felt very cold and sort of like empty emotionally. (laughs) 
Yeah, it's certainly not a love story between these two men as it is in the movie. Mm-hmm. Like it, that movie is a, it's it's more than a buddy movie. It is a love story between these two guys who really My need each kind other. Of Tarantino movie. And in this, they spend they they actually spend very little time together. Scenes in the movie where they're together, they are separate in the book. Uh, part of that is the the Musso and Frank's thing with Marvin. Uh, they are they're both talking to him, in, or or at least uh, Cliff is there. He's at the bar with them, uh, and here he's romancing the secretary and asking her to uh, "I am curious, yellow." Uh, yeah, there's a lot of time that they spend apart from one another which again is fine it basically forks off their stories uh into uh you know two different uh two different paths uh i just miss the dynamic and maybe without the chemistry between those two actors it isn't as interesting uh in the film itself like within the uh, context of the screenplay i'm not sure uh yeah I just don't think this is the movie. I mean, I don't think... I would be surprised if Tarantino even said that this book is canon. I, I think this is all very deliberate, right? Like, he's he's such a... He's such a fan of sending up this type of media. Like, the, the novelization. The, the, the Grindhouse double feature. He, I think this is very intentional, not having, based on the screenplay by on the on the book cover like they all do uh not not crediting basically not saying this is an adaptation of a script well also though just he doesn't legally have to do that because they're both him. no no i understand i totally understand but i i think that he is saying in only putting a new novel based on the film i think he is saying this is something i wrote riffing on that idea I, I would not be surprised if he believes it does take place in an alternate reality to the movie. That's fine. I don't like that reality, Ben. I didn't enjoy my time there. Is all okay. Like, well, that's fair. Fine, and there, but there's something like else that. Yeah, there's something else that Tarantino loves to do, and I think that this extends past this book, and uh, uh, I I think in movies he loves to do this, is he loves to quash expectations. And he knows that a lot of people bought this book thinking, ooh, I can't wait to hear the descriptive passage of when that flamethrower gets turned on and the, the flesh melts off of her skull. And he... I think just reveled in the idea that, you know what? I'm not even going to get there. I'm going to mention it casually in passing and people are going to be mad at me. Not everyone. Some people will love it. Some people will have no problem with it, but there will be some fans of the movie who are really disappointed that it's not there. And he loves that. Uh, Well, no offense, but I don't know if he's capable of the prose to even describe a flame flower. There is that. this, This came across to me at times like a bad version of, American Psycho the book where it's just like every sentence is just getting as many pieces of just like pop culture information in as possible with like no regard for the beauty of a sentence or like any sort of prose and I think that's almost where I struggled more it's like yeah I don't love all the some like I don't love where some of these characters are going but I guess you can look at it independently I just don't think he's good at writing novels I think he's He's, he's good at writing screenplays that are meant to get a production designer or a producer or an actor excited. And he writes this really exciting, quick sort of uh, 
you know, description of action. I just don't think he's very successful of that in novel form. It is very telling, too, that Brett Easton Ellis, huge fan of the movie and an even bigger fan of this novelization. He loves it. I, I listened to the podcast he did with Tarantino uh, about a month ago, and he is just in love with it because I think that Brett Easton Ellis, uh, you know, just like how he wrote so much of American Psycho, he almost doesn't care about plot at all he would rather just pages upon pages of discussion of movies and television and such like that uh so yeah i I do think that uh uh, that's a great comparison andrew over me i'm sorry he's the listener he's weeping he's (laughs) tears right now i have a once upon a time in hollywood poster somewhere rolled up in like a closet i should get it out and rip it up um no i uh I agree that it's not great prose, but it's just if if Tarantino puts out original books instead of movies because he's a a moron who obviously wants to make movies for the rest of his life, but is so hellbent on not backing down on this I'll only make ten thing, even though it's gonna crush his soul. It's it's just a pride thing at this point. He's going, <laughs> I, I said I would only do ten, but and and you can tell now that he's at nine, he's just sweating. Um but um if he were to only write one. novels, exactly, and I hope it is the Star Trek movie he wants to make. Um, <laughs> I think, I think in a way, I think in a way it would be kind of beautiful if his last movie was the most cribbed from his influences, where he's just like it straight up is a Star Trek movie. Um, anyway, if he were to just write novelizations or novels from now on, because there would be no movies. I think they'd be perfect for the beach. And that's that's how I felt about this book. It was just this breezy book. I opened my mouth, I unhinged my jaw, I swallowed it whole. <laughs> it was a very quick read. And I agree, like if he wants to write novels, I'm gonna read them. I'm not gonna be like, his writing's bad, I'm not interested. Like, I'm interested in his stories, I'm interested in his When has bad writing ever stopped us? It's never stopped me. <laughs> yeah. But, We're you know, a like, novelizations podcast. I just like, uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, like, I'll read them. I'm interested. Like, he's oh, every single one of his movies has a little something, even the ones that don't connect with me, that I like, you know? So no matter what he wants to give me, I'm going to pick it up. I'm reading it. But I, I just, I'm not going to say that, like, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is, like, a great novel. I'm not willing to say that. Okay. That's fair. <laughs> what do you guys think of Rick being like undiagnosed bipolar? It was an interesting addition. Uh, again, uh, I, I, uh, I mean, I guess it explains a little something more uh, contextualizing Leo's performance uh, than it does about his character. I, I don't know if I needed it, uh, but there's a lot in this book I didn't need. Uh, it's just you know an, an interesting factoid. Tarantino, I thought, uh, like, a little clever bit of writing was he has Leo, not Leo, Dalton. He has Dalton um, (laughs) grapple with uh, the idea of being bipolar before he knows it, um, in that he's told that Caleb Decato, his character on Lancer, is going mad from syphilis. And so he has to deal with this idea of, oh, I was playing this guy as, like, a sane man with of conviction, and now I'm realizing that the director has written me as a man going mad, and it's this weird 
Like he doesn't know. And by the way, if I'm, I don't, I don't want to mislabel this because I don't think they say it specifically in the book. But it might be manic depression. Basically, the book says that um, that Dalton has these crazy mood swings that cause his alcoholism because we don't know about the mental illness he has yet in yeah. 1969. When he's but up, he will he's discover. Up, when he's down. He's down. And I thought that was a clever bit of writing that he has to deal with learning that his character is acting that way because of syphilis, which will surely mirror a discovery he has later in life. There is some, like, in writing my quippy letterbox review, um, I, you know, was like, ah, oh, yes, Rick Dalton, star of Roman Polanski's Macbeth, which upon, like, this book is that has, like, a whole chapter where they talk about the Shakespearean aspect of this character that Rick is playing when Rick has never read any Shakespeare, has no idea what is being talked about at him. And he's just like, "Uh uh-huh, yes, interesting. Which I, as an actor, have done a hundred times. Not that I act anymore, but like totally, like the concept of Rick, like ending up meeting Polanski, ending up in a Shakespeare movie felt to me like this perfect little, in the same way of like, yeah, you have things in your life that lead to these other things. And you have like these experiences that are the same as experiences you have later. I don't know. I want that for him. <laughs> There's no point to that. I just uh, went off on No, that. I mean, that plays into sort of what I was saying earlier about how it's it's weirdly this novel about how people are like in a constant state of flow and, and we can't recognize like our own inflection points. Yeah, you're, that's um, a smarter, so yeah, you're I, smart. <laughs> you smart! Um, I, I know that Cliff is is so much less sympathetic in the book, and, and I do feel that. I hate so much that him losing the first round to Bruce Lee is intentional. It's my least favorite thing about the entire book. Because in the movie, Brad Pitt's being so cocky and going, oh, I can definitely knock this guy out, no problem. And he immediately gets kicked onto the ground. <laughs> and he goes, okay. Let's take that again. And it's this wonderful moment of humility. And Tarantino rewriting that as he's so smart, he lets his enemy get the first blow. So annoying. But to to your point about their friendship, this movie does go out of its way to give their friendship a happy ending by specifying that the success that that Dalton will have because of the attack at the end of the movie puts him and Cliff back in business together. They're like flying somewhere in the future. And as much as like at the end of the movie, Rick is like, I can't pay you. I can't hang out with you. He's still like, I'm going to come see you in the hospital tomorrow. Like they have like a, yes. a, re- a reminder of how important they are to each other. It is funny how much success Rick is going to find after this hippie murder. When all he really did was like, put that person out of their misery no one was making it out of there before rick even got involved but he's the movie star yeah does am i forgetting this or is this does the book mention something about them doing like a needham reynolds thing together no well i don't think the book mentions it but tarantino be like before the this was cast or anything i think his initial like log line when he was telling people what he was doing next was that he was saying that it's a riff on Hal Needham and Burt Reynolds relationship. Um, and originally Burt Reynolds was supposed to play, um, you know, George Spawn. And Which I can't see. 
I think Bruce Dern is very well cast. Bruce Dern is great. I, He's incredible. Yeah, yeah, having I I saw Burt Reynolds uh, do an in person event. Uh, I don't know, maybe seven months before he died, and uh, yeah, I don't think he was capable of handling that scene either. It breaks my heart to say that, but yeah, I. But he's also just even when he like Bruce Burt, Burt Reynolds is sexy. Oh yeah, Bruce Dern is not sexy. Well. Yes. Smile. He's not traditionally sexy. Yeah, he works so well in that old man kind of mode he's found so much success in in the last decade that I feel like it would be hard to not just see Burt Reynolds on screen. I don't know. I think, I mean, he did look very old in his last few years and you know maybe you get him out of that toupee and everything and uh you i i think he would be unrecognizable if uh if bert would have allowed that to happen uh i don't know if he would have i I think he he had ego right up until the end but uh uh, poor guy do we think that scoot mcnary is playing a young bruce stern in the film given that that character is is called out as being bruce stern in the novel a one-scene scoot? <laughs> I mean, I love a one-scene scoot, but, like, did he know that on set? Yeah, I don't know. No, I think, I I assume Burt Reynolds I, was involved at least tangentially at one point, right? Like, Tarantino believed it would be him in the movie at some point. He had the script, is what Quentin said. He, he, had, he had read it, and he had said that he wanted to do it. So I definitely think that... Uh, there's a couple things in the book, like Bruce Dern being in Lancer and um, the the just out of nowhere mention of the New Beverly, uh, which yeah. Quentin just purchased, right? <laughs> no, no, New um, Beverly he's had. He just purchased the... Uh, the Cinema no. Drum, right? Yeah. Oh, okay. So I take it back. It, it's it really just the Bruce Dern thing. I think it's just a, a post-movie release, him just winking and being like, I know there's a movie. Uh, the the point at which the book was probably pissing me off the most was when uh, he's doing his, you know, th- uh, Cliff runs into Pussycat three times, which of course is in the movie, and he picks her up the third time. And that happens in the book, and then when he sees her the third time in the book, she's picked up by someone else, and then Cliff goes yeah. and buys a record, and that was like the most just... Uh, pointless di- diversion from the movie. Where it's like, why Why does this matter that he... Because he then does end up picking her up. I thought for a second that the the woman at the record store was going to take him to Spawn Ranch. And I was like, that's awesome. <laughs> like, we're just full alternate reality. <laughs> that just felt like Tarantino referencing Tarantino because I couldn't help but think of Robert Forster and the getting the cassettes oh, yeah. and Jackie Brown. Mm-hmm. Getting some like old, you know... Yeah, what, groovy music. What I took from that scene was he just Quentin just wanted to talk about music for a while, just like uh, <laughs> Sharon Tate ta- goes on a big uh, rant about uh, how she prefers uh, the Royal Guardsmen to the Beatles or uh, oh, the Monkeys to the Beatles and Our all of that. It's just and... it's just so he can get some uh, music opinions in. Yeah. yeah, and that's done so effortlessly in the movie just by having the radio on. Like he, this is where he's so good at cinematic language. Mm-hmm. I couldn't believe I, how much dialogue, or not dialogue, but prose there was about what music was on in each scene. It's like, yeah, we know that you know how to pick a soundtrack, Quentin. <laughs> uh, but yeah, you know, th- this is a different medium now. 
I will say in this movie more than any movie, especially when I rewatched it because I am buying a 72 Chrysler, I was looking at the cars and looking at the dashboards really closely. And for the first time in my life, in during a driving scene, saw the speedometer at zero and was like, oh, you're on a lift or you're on a track or this is a green screen. And I had this tragic moment <laughs> of like illusion breaking, like a thing I had never looked for, never thought about. And suddenly I was like, oh, you're not, Brad Pitt's not really driving the car. Devastated me. What's the, uh, what's the song that Sharon uh, is dancing to in the house? It was in the trailer too. Oh, uh, lo- love and spoonful. Uh, no, what? What is it? Uh, oh God, yeah. I like music. I do. I promise. I picked out that that you know I antagonized uh, Gavin Smith about that Queens of the Stone Age thing. But um, I have this weird thing. All three times I've seen the movie where. The guitar for that song comes in. I don't know it. I mean, I don't really listen to music before my time. I suck. And uh, every time that guitar comes in, I'm like, wow, sounds like a good song. And then I just find the um, the vocalist really at odds with the instrumental. Every single time. I like can't get into it because it feels like two different energies. Well, there's a reason that band wasn't the Beach Boys, you know? <laughs> like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. They're not Absolutely. lasting musician stars. I'm just looking through my book now, looking at things that I wanted to bring up. Um, I'm sure you guys hate this. I kind of hated this. But we just unnecessarily need to learn that Cliff could have been a pimp if he wanted to. (sighs) (laughs) It's like another thing to not like about Cliff. Like, why? Why does he go so out of his way to make him awful? Yeah. I don't even, yeah I I don't even feel comfortable reading that section with the French pimp because it's just so so much. It goes what is the word? Pages. What is the word that he says over and over again? Is it fuck? There he just keeps saying it's either fuck or bitches. It's yeah. Both. Oh it's no, both. He's, he he like, keeps you fuck the bitches. That's how you keep the bitches. You fuck them the best. No, they no. It is more. It is yeah. in in to its credit, and I don't like this section. I want to be clear, but to its credit, it is. Just a constant stream of fuck. There's not a lot of bitches. It's just him saying, like, you fuck them, then you have to keep fucking them. It's like, <laughs> and I, I I, wrote down, I was like, this is like the Dennis Hopper scene uh, from, you know, whichever movie that was. True Romance. But with, uh, from True Romance, yeah. which was written by him, right? Last uh, night, but last night. just with the word fuck instead of the N-word. <laughs> it was just him, like, enjoying the word fuck a lot. It's funny, because I could see this scene working if you had, like... Gerard Depardieu doing it. Uh huh. If it's like, if it's like one flash site, like one flashback where a guy's like, "You have to fuck them." End of flashback. You'd be like, okay, <laughs> you know. Yeah. And there's it a couple of those in the movie. But I was sort of fading in and out at a certain point. I was reading. I'm like, oh, we're still in this conversation. <laughs> Doesn't it also feel like the stalest take on what? being a pimp would be like it would be so much more interesting if he was like if he was like you just really gotta gotta meet them on their level you know they're intellectual creatures like that'd be so much better (laughs) than him being like you have to fuck them (laughs) and this is where i don't know if tarantino is great at the novel because that's where you make your comparison to the mansons Mm -hmm. that's where you use you know juxtaposition exactly of like you're the pimp to these women charlie is the pimp to these women like but he's just not there. Yeah, that yet. connective thread is not there in the book. He's there when he's editing it, 
you know, but he's not there when he's writing it down. I'm so relieved that I really was worried that I was going to come to this, epi- you know, th- this this meeting with you all uh, as the one uh, who is really down on this novel and to a much lesser extent, the movie. Uh, and I thought that I was just going to be sort of, you know, sheepishly saying like, yeah, I just don't think it's very good. Uh, I, I'm very, uh, re- you know, it's very refreshing to hear that uh, we all have some some big issues with this. Because, uh, yeah, I, uh, I, I, you know, it, I enjoyed the experience of reading it but i don't think i necessarily liked it Mm -hmm. i agree Mm -hmm. is that a good Mm -hmm. transition to hold hold on just a second i'm sorry i just have so many things bookmarked Uh, (laughs) but i feel like i'm reading once upon a time in hollywood right now (laughs) on this on the same page that has the the thing about how cliff could have been a pimp another thing that i really hated this passage that I'm just going to read really quickly. Um, but, but, but this is talking about Cliff's time in the military. However, once he was transferred to the Philippines to fight alongside the Filipino guerrillas against the occupying Japanese military, he was fucking positive he was never going to see home again. And then, once he was captured by the Japanese and put in their makeshift POW camp in the Filipino jungle, Cliff Booth, Cliff Booth considered himself a walking dead man. If in his mind, blah, blah, blah. Actually, I can skip that part. Basically, they escape. And then it says, Their escape was so daring and exciting that Columbia Pictures made a nifty little wartime action flick about it directed by Paul Wencoast titled Battle of the Coral Sea. The Wencoast film was a highly entertaining but hugely fictionalized account of the escape. In the movie, it wasn't Cliff and a bunch of Filipinos that pulled off the successful escape. It was an American submarine crew led by their captain... Uh, and in a strange coincidence, uh, way before Cliff Booth knew him, Ray Dalton played one of Robertson's men. Now, this is just some Anakin-built C-3PO <laughs> shit. Like, I hate this. The, it, it makes I, The thing I love about this book is that it's these two men that should have nothing to do with each other, logically, just their lives crashing into one another, and sort of how they form this bond. And for them to be intertwined like that, it just feels so... It's another Fake. instance of like if they're going to make a story about Cliff Booth, it would star Cliff Booth. You know, like there's he's so handsome. There's literally no chance that Hollywood would look at that man and say, "Ah, eh, we're going to cast somebody else in the role." Like the concept of like play yourself is popular and has been forever. It's insane and nobody should ever do it. But like it happens in movies. You would just put Cliff Booth in the fucking movie. <laughs> Unless he reads as a psychopath on camera, which he might. He would be the guy in Inglorious Bastards who has a movie about exactly. Him that he's oh wow, in. I didn't even make that connection for. I he would be Daniel Burrell. Wait, uh, so spell, spell that out for me. Movie. I'm I'm being dumb right now. Spell that okay, out for me. Okay, so remember in the uh, latter half of Inglorious Bastards, Shoshana's running the movie house where the premiere is going to be with Hitler and all those people. Uh huh. And there's an actor. Yeah, he's, well, he's not an actor. He's a war hero in Nazi Germany. They made a movie that Eli Roth directed within the universe, and he uh, he's playing himself on his like heroic, I sniped thousands of people and saved the day. This is where Clint Eastwood got the idea for that stupid train movie, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, which is the other famous example of do you want to play yourself in a movie that yeah. I can think of. But, uh, yeah. So I'm, I, So the connection being that Cliff Booth could be that type of figure 
Yeah, yeah Cliff it Booth makes could no be a war hero me. who's like super handsome and played himself in a movie. Yeah. Or like gotcha. so many people came back from the war and were like, well, I'm, I was a war hero. I will be an actor now. And the, the boost yeah. of being a war hero helped. Yeah. Yeah, including several characters in this book uh, yeah. and and the movie. Um, uh, 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 well, yeah, uh, James Stacy uh, mentions his uh, his uh, World War Two or is it Korea uh, fighting and uh, someone else too. Uh, I can't. Uh, gosh, yeah, I'm sorry, I can't remember now. But yeah, there there are a few yeah. people calling attention to uh, the the uh, Aldo Ray. There, yeah, there's all that whole Aldo Ray section. Lee Marvin too. Yeah, there's there's tons of that uh, sprinkled in. But yeah, Cliff uh, would rather be a stunt man because you know the pussy is better. I don't know. <laughs> I, I I just don't want to disagree with everything you guys say because it feels like I'm just picking fights on everything. But I just disagree with like who you are as people and your moral fiber. <laughs> so that's why. See, but the thing uh, is, like, <laughs> we are agreeing with you on this point that that is a bad aspect of the novel. No, no, but, but that little line is like not good. <laughs> But see, we're, we're, we're mostly diametrically opposed on Cliff Booth because I like the serial killer aspect. I, we agree that like the, him being kind of invincible is bad. Like the, the, the Bruce Lee thing is, is bad. Um, but with him being a, a stuntman instead of an actor, I, sometimes I look at baseball players who are, unbelievably handsome and i wonder why is this guy not acting why is he just on the mound you know um and i feel like there is something more than looks that you need to be a person who can be worked with in a fictional setting right and i, wish I don't know that the, that he necessarily has that I, yeah, I wish that there was, if they're going to say, like, they made a movie about him, he's so handsome, why isn't he in movies? I wish there was maybe a line in the book that was like, he did a screen test and everyone was like, something's not right about you, you don't have it. Like, you're handsome, but it's not acting. Sorry. You like, need that scene right. in Rocky 2 where Rocky's doing the commercial and he can barely deliver a line of dialogue. Yeah, or like, he's a bad actor. Yes. But like, at some, yeah. like, at some point, somebody pr- should have taken Cliff Booth and said, like, let's see if we can make you an actor, you're too handsome. And then realize, like, can't act. He has something dead behind his eyes that is scary. You know, like, then I would I would accept some of this stuff. But especially being like they made a movie about him and they didn't try and cast him in it. I don't buy that. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes sense. It's about him. On that point, I do have to concede that, do you? Um So if you were to recommend this book to a person, (laughs) if you were to be put in a position where you either needed to recommend the book or not recommend the book, would you recommend it to a person who loved the movie? Would you recommend it to a person who hated the movie? Would you recommend it to a person who hadn't seen the movie? Everything's on the table. I think the book is an interesting artifact. And if you really like the movie, you might be interested in the book. I don't think I would necessarily be like, you gotta read the book. And I think in talking to someone about the movie, if they were like, oh, here's the stuff I really liked about the movie, and it didn't align with the things in the book, I might say, the book's probably not for you. You know, I think there's a larger conversation there. But it's also like, as separate entities, I think they're both interesting, and the book has value, and I'm glad it exists. 
but it's sort of like um like my favorite book of all time is The Long Goodbye by Raymond Chandler. And I can't stand the movie, Robert Altman's The Long Goodbye. I hate it because I love the book too much. And I it and the the movie is diametrically opposed in theme and heart and tenor in ways that I find unbearable. So like well, if you felt that way. So. But, yeah, it is. I get it. Yeah. But I'm like, what if they never make one that does align with the book? Because I was like, oh, no, all this true. is perfect. It's not. It makes me crazy. Anyway, to that level, if you if the things you really, really love about the movie are like that cliff is nice, don't fucking read the book. You won't like it. Don't do that to yourself, you know, like or if you're really, really invested in like the Italian movie ass part of the movie, like don't read the fucking book. It has nothing for you. Like, I think that's the conversation I'd have with someone before just like loosely recommending it. But it's interesting. I'm glad I, I'm glad I read it. You know. Yeah. I was curious to read this because I was curious what a Quentin Tarantino novel uh, might be, whether it's based on his film or not. Uh, now that I know what that is, I don't know if I need to do another one. Uh, I am relieved that he chose to, uh, writing novelization of not necessarily my favorite Tarantino movie. Uh, so I felt less of a personal connection to it. But uh, I, yeah, I, I think that if you like the movie, you'll be curious to read the book for a little more. But yeah, uh, don't treat it like too sacred a text, uh, unless you really want to. Uh, there's going to be people who love this. There's going to be people who hate it. I'm somewhere in between, but I'm also a little indifferent. Yeah, I mean, I'm on a similar perspective to the two we've had so far. I think it this is a book for people who like movies at the very least. You know, they might not be a huge Quentin Tarantino fan, but they might be the kind of person who gets one of those big coffee table art books of, like, Rise of Skywalker and sees all the concept art for things that never happened. Like, they're interested in, like, what could have been what was cut, things like that, and I think it makes sense. But it's certainly not the comparison I think of is like the play Amadeus and the movie Amadeus where they're distinct entities, but they are both great. These are distinct mm-hmm. entities, but I think they need each other more, as you said, Andrew. They're like reliant on one another to such a degree that I can't recommend it to someone who hasn't seen the movie. I, I can't re- recommend it to someone who just wants to read a book. You know, I wouldn't give this to someone who's never read seen the movie and say go read this on the beach this summer you'll have a great time and i think part of that is that it yeah it doesn't stand up on its own but i also just think as i mentioned i really just had a lot of problem with the prose i didn't think it was that well written of a book even for a beach read someone asked me i can't answer my own so what about you yeah what where are you on this uh yeah so i i Obviously, it came out most favorably uh, for the book. I really like it for the oddity that it is, and I, I I like it as a text that's definitely leeching off of the movie, but uh, also claims its independence in a lot of ways. I uh, would definitely recommend it to a person who loves the movie, because even if it perverted the things that they love in the way that, Hannah, you've sort of been talking about, I... I think the perversions are interesting, and even if it took away what something, lo- if, even if it took away something that a person loved about it, I think seeing the negative kind of has value, if that makes sense. Yeah. 
I can see that. I can I can recognize and respect that perspective. Right. Um. I mean, I just flat out did find it to be a really enjoyable and thrilling read. I, I think that the decision to not really have a climax is um smart in that I don't think it's just a subversion of expectations. Uh, after reading things like Battleship and Bloodshot, where we have so many paragraphs upon paragraphs of he leapt onto the, the hull of the alien ship, his boots slipping, he felt the salt <laughs> licking his wounds or whatever. You know, I I just feel like if you recognize maybe a book isn't the best place to describe slamming a hippie's face into a rotary phone over and over again, if you recognize that that action sort of loses its viscerality on the page, avoiding it completely is, is really interesting to me. Um, the one thing that I, I had left to sort of bring up that I think is a good thing to for me to close on is that, or I, I mentioned it briefly, but the, the scene with uh, Marvin Schwartz at the end of the book I think is really great, where uh, in the movie at the beginning... Dalton saying, I, I will never do an Italian Western. Those are terrible. If I do those, that means my career's over. Uh, and then he's just suddenly doing them, which which is kind of interesting. It's a, it's a it's an observation of how we just, you know, we just change. We just erode our morals or we decide we that we were wrong. Yeah, we just suck it up or you just you just grow up and you're like, whatever. It's not that big of a deal. It's a job. But I like that in the book they have a scene where Marvin Schwartz calls him up and, and goes, hey, let's do some Italian Westerns like we talked about at the beginning of the book. And he goes, I don't want to do that. That means I would be a has-been. And Marvin Schwartz essentially, without mincing words, says, you are a has-been. And he has that long passage about you, you wear a pompadour. Nobody wears a pompadour anymore. You're already a relic of another time. And if you go to Italy, nobody cares. You can wear a pompadour until you die. You know, um, and I, I think that in a lot of ways that the movie is about Rick being humbled in some ways. And, and I think that scene in particular really advances the agenda of the book and the film. So I would recommend it to people who love the movie. I would also recommend it to someone who hadn't seen the movie but loves Tarantino. I'd be like, read the book first. I think that'd be interesting. I'm very um, curious about that perspective, for sure. I I would not recommend it to someone who didn't like Tarantino, and I'm going to go one step further and say I would not recommend it to anyone as their first book they'd ever read. I think that would be a mistake. <laughs> but within the first ten, I think, is acceptable, you know. Once you've gotten through the Dr. Seuss books, this is a great place to go. Uh, uh, yeah, we... we um, we sort of haven't found a, a uniform sign-off for here as we approach the end of season one. Uh, I tried nihilism for a while, got old. <laughs> <laughs> well, guys, I think it's been a pleasure talking to you about this very interesting little giant book and an, and an interesting <laughs> film, and it's personally always a treat. <laughs> Likewise. I, I feel the same way. I'm impartial. <laughs> okay, Andrew doesn't have any feeling. Thank you for listening to another episode of Authorized. Uh, we will be back next week with our season finale, Batman Forever. Our first repeat novelizationist, Peter David of Battleship, returns Ooh. to tell us about how long Batman will be around, I assume, <laughs> if you've seen the movie. <laughs>